the minor prophets. Uh, before we dig into that, let me just sort of ask and answer for us uh, why we're here, why we study the Bible, why we would want to dig deeper in a part of the Bible. Um, it's because we're not just called to read the Bible as if the Bible's presence in our lives will affect us by mere osmosis. Uh, we're to understand the Bible. Uh, how often did Jesus say something like, don't you understand what it says when this prophet says this or that? Um, he, he says to the, the two men in the road to Emmaus, didn't you understand all that the prophets said about me? Uh, and so he, he wants us to understand. You think of Psalm 119 where the, the psalmist is praying for understanding, um, not just, you know, Bible presence or Bible reading, but understanding. Uh, and so we want to study the Bible as God has given it to us, and he's given it to us in different eras of his plan, uh, from different people in his plan, uh, under different circumstances, covering different things, communicating to us uh, a whole gamut of things about himself, about what he expects of us, about what we can trust in, uh, about what he wants us to do in response to his goodness and, and glory and his attributes and all that. And so related to that is why we study minor prophets. It's part of the Bible. It's no small part of the Bible. Uh, we need a, a Saturday morning or at least something like this or maybe from time to time a, a good book on something like the prophets because they're neglected, because they're cumbersome to us. They seem like they're distant and foreign and complicated and, and sort of obtuse and not very easily manageable. Uh, so many of us would feel really comfortable staying in Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians, which communicates doctrine and also tells us how to live in light of that doctrine. Uh, most of us are used to thinking in those Pauline ways, uh, which are really Aristotelian ways. Um, and yet there are these parts of the Bible like poetry in the Psalms or poetry and prophecy that happens through these prophets that's, that's no small part of the Bible. It's part of how we know who God is and what he wants. And so we want today to try to help each other to get our arms around uh, the prophets um, and what they're like. So here's the plan for today. We've got three talks, three speakers uh, I'll spend the first hour on basic rules of interpreting the prophets, some guidelines. Uh, and then the second hour, Ron will talk to us about how the 12 minor prophets should really be thought of as a, as a unit called the 12, not just 12 random books that happen to be in the same place in our Bibles, uh, but how they go together in a literary way. And then Asher at the end will put things together for us uh, working on Habakkuk 1 and 2. So I won't spend much time on Habakkuk, uh, and I don't think Ron will either, but we'll leave whatever we cover for Asher then to uh, apply to and then work from uh, the book of Habakkuk as we get more specific uh, at that point. Uh, we'll, we'll try to leave 15 minutes or so at the end of our time together this morning, so that means what, 11.45 to 12 for a Q&A with all three of us up here. Uh, so I at least won't break for questions 
too often unless I see a lot of um, furrowed brows and question marks floating above your head. Uh, so we'll try to reserve questions for the end, but do keep track of them, write them down, know that at the end we'll, we'll open it up for questions uh, about anything we've talked about or, or didn't get to cover. Let me start by reading a bit from Habakkuk and then I'll pray. Uh, as I said, I won't deal with Habakkuk too much, but, but maybe you didn't even read anything in the Minor Prophets before you came here this morning, and that's fine. So let's just sort of dip our toes into the book of Habakkuk, uh, see something of its language, see something of what this kind of literature is like in the Bible. I'll read chapter 1 and then the first four verses of chapter 2. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw... O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The Lord answers, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans or Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards. They're more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk responds, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings up all of them with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and, situation, and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint." And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits us, awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. 
If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Stop there. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, God of judgment and mercy, God of wisdom and care, We thank you that you do see. We thank you that you do have a plan. We thank you that you have been kind, that you will judge the nations. You will discipline your people. You have proven your faithfulness again and again and again. We confess this morning, Lord, that you have provided for our needs. You have protected us thus far. You have led us in paths of righteousness for your namesake not because we deserve it, but only because of your grace. So by your grace, Lord, we're here this morning for your glory to learn more about your word and the God in this word. We thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself in these words and for the whole Bible you've given to us. Help us, Lord, to not neglect it. Help us, Lord, to look for you and for For it, with clarity, help us to grow in understanding. Use these few hours we have together this Saturday, Lord, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So when we come to study the prophets, uh, there are some things that are unique to the prophets as opposed to other parts of the Bible, as I already alluded. These, these are not epistles, and we can't always use the same rules or same strategies of interpretation that we would use for epistles. However, there are some strategies for interpretation that actually do transcend all these different parts of the Bible and different kinds of literature. One of those is context. So let me run through seven headings that you have in your notes, starting on, I guess, page two. So 1.1, this is the first of seven headings I have, and it's context. We have to think about context, just like we would if we were in epistles, or if we were in the Psalms, or if we were in 1 Samuel, so also with the prophets, we have to consider context. And there are two kinds of contexts we should consider. There's literary context and historical context. When we talk about literary context, we're talking about where this part of the Bible sits in the Bible. We ask ourselves, where are we in our Bibles when we're doing any kind of Bible reading? We should should be aware of what genre or kind of literature we're dealing with. Now, Look at the table of contents in your Bible. Go back, whatever page that is in your Bible. It's going to be something close to page 1 or uh, a Roman numeral because it's part of the preface. But go to the contents at the beginning of your Bible. And notice here that, if you've never noticed before, our Bibles are actually organized not purely according to chronology, but primarily, first and foremost, according to genre or kinds of literature. So let me, uh, let me go to this. Chris, if you can put me up here on the screen. Let me mention this. 
look down your table of contents, and I'll just jot some things down. Here's what we have in our Bibles. We have uh, history. And what books are those? It starts with Genesis. That's your first clue. To what? What's that? What kind of literature? What do we have in our Bibles? What, what does the next kind of literature start in our Bibles? Job. Yeah, I'll explain why in just a second. So before that is Esther. That's a history book. So in the middle here, we've got what we call wisdom literature. That's Job. You might think Job is history, but it really isn't. It's this poetic drama about uh, wrestling with God's fairness and justice and mercy and all that. Um, so we got Job all the way to what? Yeah, Song of Solomon. And then we have the prophets. So that's Isaiah all the way to uh, Malachi. And then we've got a breakdown between what kind of prophets? Major and minor. Right? So the minor start with what? Hosea and go all the way to Malachi. So this is going to be Isaiah to what? Daniel. So this is the breakdown of our Old Testaments. This is how it works. There's some, well, there's a good bit of chronology going on there, but it's not totally a chronological breakdown. Uh, there's some benefits to this kind of breakdown, some some difficulties with this kind of breakdown, but nevertheless, it's what we have in our, in our English Bibles. The major prophets are called so because they're larger, and the minor prophets are called so not because they are in a minor key and they're sadder than the major prophets, but it's because they're smaller. Uh, I'll talk in just a minute about why else they're together. Uh, but just know this, this is what we have in our Bibles, and we shouldn't be that surprised. Jesus in Luke 24 talked about um, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And the Psalms would have been understood as an umbrella category for all the wisdom literature. So even Jesus in Luke 24 was using this three-part uh, partizing of, of the Old Testament. Another question we should ask regarding literary context is, is there a grouping of books that we should be aware of? Uh, what, what in the Old Testament is a grouping of books, besides minor prophets, that's where I'm going, but where else? Where else do we find a grouping of books that really can be treated as a whole? The Torah, yeah, or sometimes called the Pentateuch, Penta, five, the first five books of the Bible, uh, mostly written by Moses. That's a grouping. So, okay, that can be treated as this, this unit of sorts. Uh, and so the same with the minor prophets. They're treated as a group, not just because they're the small ones, but because they were just known as the 12. And Hebrew Bibles really kept them together as almost a whole book or a literary unit. So that's what Ron's going to talk about in the next hour. I don't want to steal any of his thunder. 
But just know this, that the 12 is uh, a thing. There's a reason we would study the minor prophets together, not just for the convenience that they're the small ones. Before they were ever called minor prophets, they were just known as the 12. And so we should keep that in mind. There's a literary structure to the 12. Uh, We should be looking for where they are, what order, uh, even though they break from uh, chronological order at times. So that leads us to this. In your notes, you've got a chart there. A chart with uh, the prophets and their dates categorized by, well, three things on one side and then three other things across the top. So we can think of prophets according to the exile. These prophets, these minor prophets, these 12 Uh, they all have some relationship to the exile or what's known as the Babylonian captivity. Dates for that are right there underneath your chart. 598 to 538 B.C. is when Israel was removed. Israel and Judah were removed from their land and taken. Israel was taken by the Assyrians. Judah was taken to Babylon. Now, why am I distinguishing between Israel and Judah? Let's not assume that everyone in the room knows that. God's people were for many years treated as a a unit, right? Twelve tribes, but it was a really good thing when all twelve tribes came under King David in 2 Samuel 5. You go on a little bit further... And things just sort of swell and grow. The smile gets bigger and bigger in the days of Solomon. The temple is built. Uh, The queen of Sheba is coming from far away to honor Solomon with gifts and get wisdom from him. That's 1 Kings 10. 1 Kings 10 is a high point in the Bible. 1 Kings 11 shows Solomon really heading south with sin. And then 1 Kings 12 is when the kingdom is divided as an act of judgment from God. So there's Israel and there's Judah. Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. Why does that matter for prophets and specifically minor prophets? Because some of the prophets wrote to Israel. They were of Israel in the north, and they addressed Israel in the north. Other prophets, most of them, wrote to uh, the, the southern kingdom in Judah. And then a few of them, Jonah, Nahum, Obadiah, they actually addressed foreign nations, and so we can kind of categorize those in, in those kinds of ways. So here now we're talking about historical context. We're asking the question, did a specific prophet write before the exile happened or during the exile or after? It's going to matter. So we don't just ask literary context questions. We also have to ask historical context questions. We also have to ask related to that, who are they writing to? Is this to a foreign nation? That matters. Is this to Israel? Uh, Is this to Judah? Any questions about what the exile is? What it's for? It's it's discipline, right? If you don't know, 
um, God had long ago prescribed for his people that uh, every seventh year they were to let the land have rest. There were several kinds of rests or Sabbaths. This was one of those. And as a single mark or indication of their rebellion and unfaithfulness, uh, God pointed out this thing, that they had gone 490 years without letting the land rest at all. And so to discipline them, he gave them a 70-year time out from his blessings, you could say, a removal from the land of promise, the land of blessing. Uh, it was 70 years because they had neglected the, the land for 70 Sabbaths. So we need to know how important the exile is. We need to understand how relevant it is, especially for the prophets. They are sort of transfixed on this one thing of the exile. Let me show you why the exile is so important. Look over to Matthew 1 in your Bible. Matthew 1. Would someone with a loud voice read us the first verse of Matthew 1? Just the first verse. So the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that's what follows, the genealogy. And Matthew's already told us a couple of the headings of his genealogy. Son of David, son of Abraham. So look down, verse 2, Abraham was the father of, and then you get his descendants. And then look down to the middle of verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon, and then you get a series of generations after that. Then... Here's an added component to this genealogy, another section we could say, verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, and then you get another series of genealogies or, or, or offspring of sons. And then the conclusion, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, uh, to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, there weren't literally 14 generations. There were probably more. But Matthew has given us 14 generations in each of these sections as a literary structure to give us an outline of the Old Testament. So, you've got Abraham... You have David, you have Babylon, what's the deportation to Babylon? What's the other word we've been using for that? Exile, and then Jesus. This is one way to outline the Old Testament. I mean, there are any number of ways of doing it, but these are some high points, right? These are some things you want to talk about. You've got Abraham. All the promises related to him. You got David, all the promises related to him. And then you've got this thing called the exile. It's a big deal. There's a before, there's a during, there's an after. And they all 
lead to Jesus. Okay? So, in Matthew's understanding, the exile is a big deal. It's up there with Abraham and David, but in a, a negative event, as opposed to Abraham and David, which were primarily positive uh, characters in the Bible's story. So all this is related to context and historical context. Let's talk now about structure. 1.2 in your notes, let's talk about structure. Here are some, some clues, four or five clues related to structure when we're looking at one of these prophets. Let me start by saying it's not easy to determine structure. That's one of the reasons why many of us find prophets, uh, whether major or minor, difficult because it doesn't seem real clear. You know, Romans, there's this doctrinal stuff, and then it gets to chapter 12, and it says, therefore, now, according to the mercies of God that have just been talked about for 11 chapters, live in this way. And we go, oh, okay, I got it. Romans has a two-part outline. We'll start with that. And you'd be right on with that. Uh, It's harder to understand the structure of these uh, prophetic books, uh, and partly because they don't all work the same way. But here are some things you can look for. You can watch for speeches or sermons. The same thing, speeches or sermons. Uh, A book like Isaiah will have several of them. A book like Ezekiel will have several of them. And so you want to sort of know when you're in a speech or a sermon, and then when something else is happening in between, and then when you're back to another sermon. That's one way of seeing structure. It's worth noting that some of these prophets use dialogue. Some of it will be dialogical. Uh, Malachi would be an example where there's a dialogue between God and his people. There's this, you know, but you will say, and then God says. Uh, Habakkuk is a dialogue between God and the prophet. Thirdly, you can watch for repetition. There is in these prophets some chronological order, not always, but there's also at times, something like a spiral staircase that happens where the same events are talked about or the same event even is talked about at different levels or with repetition. So Isaiah would be an example where he talks about the restoration of Zion seven times. Surely that's not an accident. I mean, seven's a a, a frequently used symbolic number in the Bible. And uh, Isaiah talks about Zion's transformation like that spiral staircase seven times over. You can also watch for thematic development when you read through one of the prophets. They tend to move from rebuke to invitation or warning. So, response, right? There's rebuke, then there's response. There's a fork in the road with response. Which way is it going to be? Are you going to respond with repentance and then there's blessing? Are you going to respond with hard-heartedness and then there's judgment? Uh, And then there's always, almost always, some sort of hopeful promise at the end, sometimes grand hopeful promises. So you can just sort of watch the thematic development. And again, sometimes it's going to be like a 
spiral staircase, you might see several levels of rebuke, warning, uh, invitation, hopeful promises. But generally, they seem to move from problem to solution or, or rebuke to hope. And really a fifth element to structure that I don't have here, it's kind of related to, to speeches or sermons, things like that, is just visions. Uh, so you might want to write that down, a fifth element to structure in prophetic literature. Like with Ezekiel, you want to know when he's having a vision. I think you'll know it. They're pretty far out there. Uh, and, uh, and, and you should know, okay, this is a vision, so buckle up and, uh, you know, don't, don't try to overdo the interpretation here because it might it might be a little bit more symbolic than some other things he's saying okay let's talk about features then 1.3 in your notes let's talk about features um, what I mean by features is what makes the prophets unique um, well I would say there's a rare combination of these elements these features one that the prophets were representing God and speaking for him as prosecuting attorneys. Think of it that way, prosecuting attorneys. They are, they are representing God, and they are bringing evidence of God's people's failures uh, alongside the covenant that God has spoken to his people, showing them that they're not meeting the covenant, and God is warning, and so they speak for God. Related to that then is, secondly, a concern about sin and waywardness. Remember, they all have this kind of connection to the exile. Some are anticipating the exile that's to come. Some are directly promising the exile that's going to come. Some are in the midst of the exile, like Ezekiel, and they're looking to the circumstances that they're in, but also looking beyond to a, a later day. But, but right where they stand and as they write or as they preach, they're addressing sin. They are giving rebuke. They are piling up the evidence as prosecuting attorneys for Israel and Judah's failures. And so related to that, there's a call to repent. There, there's this invitation to return to God and to his covenant kindness. You might want to circle covenant there because covenant is such a big deal with these prophets. They're looking back primarily to the Mosaic covenant and Israel's failures with that covenant despite God's faithfulness to that covenant. Um, and so there's a call to repent. There's the use of poetry throughout it all. When we're talking about Hebrew poetry, that means we're, we're seeing a lot of what we call parallelism, uh, which means just couplets, double liners, where something is stated in the first line, and then essentially it's repeated in the second line, although sometimes with added information or nuance or something like that in the second line. That's parallelism. Watch for parallelism and poetry in these prophets, no matter whether it's in a vision, uh, no matter whether it's sermon or discourse, uh, no matter whether God is speaking or the prophet is speaking, it almost matters not. Poetry is just scattered throughout. And because most of us don't read poetry, let alone Hebrew poetry, 
Uh, we're just not good at spotting it. And so we get a little dizzy sometimes when we're reading this kind of stuff. Um, but it might help if we just realize, oh, that is poetry. Those are parallel lines. They're saying the same thing, and they're using imagery or metaphors. Fifth there in your notes, vivid metaphors. Put a big old asterisk or star next to metaphors because they are a big, big deal in the prophets. Now, who wants to tell us what a metaphor is? Give us a, a perfectly untechnical definition of a metaphor. We use something to describe something else. Yeah. We use something to describe something else. Now, what's the something we use? Let's get a little more specific. Yeah, it's a picture. It's like a word illustration, right? Right? So it can be a single word. A single word can be a metaphor. Uh, or a phrase, or it can go on for a while and, and be longer than that. Uh, in the Bible, what we see sometimes are cosmic metaphors or cataclysmic metaphors. Someone turn to Joel 2 for us. Just raise your hand if you're going to be the one to do this. Raise your hand if you'll turn to Joel 2 and read us just two verses. Asher was just there on Sunday. Joel 2. Lynn, would you do it? Okay. Joel 2, and then read verses 30 and 31. Listen for the cataclysmic or cosmic metaphors. So the moon turned to blood. Now, even if you say, hey, I think that's literal. I think at the end of time, there's going to be a red moon. There might be, but it says the moon turned to blood. No one thinks that is literal, like the moon actually became this enormous bowl of blood. Whatever it means, it's figurative language in some way, shape, or form, even if one day will, there will be a red moon, but it's... It's even height, even if that's a physical description of the moon, it's heightened with the metaphor of the moon turned to blood, right? And it probably means more than just a red moon. You've got graphic metaphors in the Bible. I'll let you read Ezekiel 16 for yourself. That's a chapter where Judah's unfaithfulness to the Lord is described in terms of her whoring around with other gods. They're married to Yahweh God, and they've been unfaithful with other gods. And so God is pointing out their whoredom in graphic ways and saying things like, I will expose all your harlotry. I will lift up your skirt so the nations will see. Graphic metaphors. You got mixed metaphors. Uh, there are a lot of examples uh, of this. You could look at Isaiah 34 verses 5 through 6, to see one example of mixed metaphors. Note that. Instead of thinking, wait a minute, how is that possible? It's okay. We mix metaphors all the time in the English language. Don't be surprised that it's in the Bible as well. 
They're living metaphors at times. What's the most famous living metaphor? What I mean by that is a prophet living out a metaphor. Hosea, right? He was called to marry a prostitute because of um, God's people's unfaithfulness. There are a lot of these. I was uh, looking for some of them this week. I was re- reminded that in Jeremiah 13, he, he, he has to go hide his underwear uh, in the river Euphrates and then go look for it again sometime later. And he pulls it out and he says, this underwear is no good. And God says, yeah, Israel's no good. <laughs> um, how many of you get Ezekiel 4.9 bread? Any of you healthy people? Ezekiel 4.9 bread? Might want to read the context. They should have read the context of Ezekiel 4 before they slapped that on a bag of bread because that bread in Ezekiel 4 is cooked over human feces. Yeah, right. It's funny. Uh, so living metaphors, there are a lot of these. Um, Isaiah you know, went, went around naked for three years, I think. Uh, there's also this thing called synecdoche. Synecdoche. Now that means a part for the whole. I think I'm spelling that right. No, there's no H in the middle. Synecdoche means a part for the whole. Here's an example. Hebra- Habakkuk 1 I don't want to steal Asher's thunder, but let me just show you one example of this in Habakkuk 1. If I can find it, that's the small part of, small difficulty with the minor prophets is they're not easy to find. Look at Habakkuk 1, uh, verse 10. Here the Babylonian kings um, are described and their rulers and all that, their, their generals, their armies. It says, verse 10, at kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. Now, these Babylonians must have been really funny, right? I mean, when they were going to battle, they were always laughing at kings, laughing at fortresses. No, here's where it's almost literal, but it's not. Um, You can imagine a Babylonian military general looking at the enemy's fortress and actually laughing at it. But it's also just one small thing which represents the whole. That shows their, their defiance, their confidence, uh, their ruthlessness. Uh, this is how they approach war. They laugh at it. It's easy for them. They conquer that easily. So it's a small thing. It's a little thing. They laugh at fortresses but it represents a whole ethos, a whole air in which they're breathing and and, uh, the Bible is breathing as it describes them. So so metaphors are a big deal. Most of us might think of metaphors in uh, a paper in high school or in college as window dressing. Some of you who uh, did homeschooling or you're doing it with your kids, uh, you might tell your kids you need some more dress-ups in this paper. Anyone know what that is? Dress-ups? You know, you put in flavor, you put in metaphors or illustrations. Um, But many of us don't think that they're all that important. It's just what you gotta do to to get an A in the paper. Uh, You gotta make it interesting or lively. And so put in some metaphors here or there. But, But instead, think of them as potent communication. 
I mean, they stir the imagination. They have multi-layer information uh, in a single imagery. They laugh at fortresses. That, 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 that stirs the imagination. You can picture that, and then you picture all that it represents. Metaphors, really big in the prophets. Another part of the prophets that's really important is, well, I think I've messed up the numbering here. It goes from five back to five, but that should be six. Explanation of the exile. Again, they're often addressing this thing that either might come or, no, no, it's too late now. Now it is coming, and then they're articulating why it's coming and how long it's going to be and how this is right for God to do this. All those kind of things. They're explaining the exile. They're also dealing with the question of the Davidic covenant, the promises made to David of a king always being on God's throne in Israel. Has that failed? Do you see the, the problem that the exile would, would raise or the questions it would raise uh, for the Davidic covenant where you know, God's king will reign in peace and justice, and there will always be a Davidic king on the throne forever and ever and ever. That's 2 Samuel 7. Well, what happens when Babylonians come in and destroy the temple and destroy the king's palace and take the king away, and there is no king in Israel or Judah? Well, the, the prophets are dealing with that. They're addressing that. And then they're also talking about promise and fulfillment promise and fulfillment. They're not only saying that the promises of old, like the Davidic covenant, will be fulfilled. They're also actually enlarging those promises with things that hadn't been said and hadn't been promised before. So let's talk about promise and fulfillment. That's 1.4 in your notes. Promise. And fulfillment, and here we want to stress that it is multi-layered. Multi-layered. Here's what I mean. There is near and far fulfillment of promises that we find in the prophets. We've got to understand that. We might think of prophets as talking simply about the last days. They're prophesying about the last day, the final day when Jesus comes back and God establishes a new heaven, new earth. Sometimes they are, but not always. You might think of prophets as prophesying about Jesus. Often they are, but not always and not always in the same way. You got to start with them, that moment. What's going on? You have to start with the exile. What is this prophet saying about the exile? So look down in your notes. Here are some things that are promised in the prophets. Number one, that God's people will return to the land. After 70 years in captivity, God's people will return to the land. There will be rebuilding of the temple. There will be a king on the throne again. That will happen. And sometimes it's described in very that moment specific kind of ways or, or that era, right? So certain kings will be talked about. God's people will return to the land. They will also, secondly, return to the Lord. 
Maybe it'll be later than when they return to the land, but there is a promise. They'll return to the Lord. They will, in the end, finally repent of their waywardness that got them in that discipline of 70 years in Babylon. Thirdly, the promises of old will be kept. The promises to Abraham, the promises to Moses, the promise to David, these things will be kept. They will not fail, despite what it looks like when you are walking back from Babylon to a Jerusalem that is in ruins. As I said, the promises of old will not only be kept, but fourthly, the old ones even get enlarged like these. Number five, Messiah will come, and there'll be a new covenant, a better covenant than the old covenant. So the old covenant said, do this and live, but didn't actually provide the heart means by which you would obey. And so there was failure, failure, failure. And then God promises a a new covenant, a new day to come, where his people will be given a new heart, and they will obey, not perfectly, but but substantially different than they did before. There's the promise of a new heaven and a new earth at the end. You see how Messiah, that's fulfilled when Jesus comes. That's fulfilled in Matthew 1, in Bethlehem, in Matthew 2. New covenant, well, that's something we experience right now, right? The Lord's Supper is a, is a meal in the new covenant, we say. But then far off in the distance, well, maybe not that far off, we don't know, but there is coming a day when there's a new heaven and a new earth. Sometimes the prophets are talking about that day. And so here's the promise, and sometimes it's going to be the return. And sometimes that promise is going to be, um, what do we say, Messiah or New Covenant. Sometimes that promise is going to be fulfilled in a new heaven and new earth. Not New Hampshire, New England, but, but new heaven, new earth. You see, multi-layers of fulfillment. So rather than say, wait, when is this happening? Is this happening now? Am I seeing this in the newspaper? I heard about an earthquake yesterday. I heard earthquakes are on the rise on, in, in the planet right now. Uh, Does that mean something like Hosea or Joel is happening now? Well, no. Let's think in terms of these main eras or big fulfillments that have to take place and and how um, they have, in some cases, taken place and some still remain. There's judgment against the nation. So that would be another part of this, too. The judgments against the nations... Well, you could say that happens uh, in the short run, you know, within a lifetime. God is going to punish Edom for betraying Judah. God is going to punish the Babylonians, even though he's using them to discipline Judah. And so there's judgment upon the nations in the soon perspective and in the final perspective perspective, right? In the end, all the wicked will be destroyed by the Lord because he's coming, and he's coming in justice and in holiness. And related to that as well is salvation for the nations. 
You see, not all the nations, like every single person, will be destroyed, but many among the nations will be saved. When do we see that fulfilled? Well, we see the start of it when Jesus comes, the start of it in his ministry, the start of it, uh, well, we've been seeing it in the book of Acts where it starts to blossom. Uh, We're seeing it as a church as we send forth missionaries uh, to North Africa, um, a place where the, the gospel is not that well known. The point is this, that the fulfillments, notice this in your notes, the fulfillments in the New Testament and beyond actually become grander than the promises themselves. So not only do you have old promises won't fail, they'll be kept. Not only do you have those promises will in fact get enlarged during the prophets and when they write, they they get bigger. Not only that, but the fulfillment that happens is actually bigger than the promise of, or any of the promises before. Look at Matthew 1. It's in your notes. It's where uh, there's a quotation of Isaiah 7.14. Here we have it on the screen. Here's Matthew 1, where the angel says to Mary, Joseph, son of David, uh, sorry, he says to Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if you go back to Isaiah 7 and read that in context, if you read verses 10 to 16 of Isaiah 7, I encourage you to do that on your own later on, you'll find that this sign was not given for the people, not at first, for the people in Jesus' time. Not at first, for the purposes of writing Matthew 1. There in Isaiah 7, King Ahaz is told, why don't you ask God for a sign? And Ahaz says, no, I wouldn't bother. I I, I wouldn't do that. He's too pious to ask God for a sign. And then God says, I'll give you a sign anyway. A son will be born of a virgin, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, it seems as though in the first instance, this was going to happen in Ahaz's time. This is how Ahaz was to know that God was on the move in judgment and in blessing. How does he know? God gave him a sign. God gave him a, sign. a son's going to be born of a virgin. We don't actually know who this was. It was probably Ahaz's son. Uh, we don't know if his name was literally Emmanuel or that's a figurative name. We don't know. But that happened then. And then Matthew sees that this is the way God works. God is often giving signs in sons. He gives miraculous sons at special times, and Jesus is the biggest one of them all. They indicate that God is with us. So do you see how there's multi-layered fulfillment, number one. Number two, the New Testament is doing something 
that's bigger than what the old promised. So look at Isaiah 7, 14. A virgin shall, shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Does it say anything in Isaiah 7, 14 about how that son will save his people from their sins? No, there's nothing in Isaiah 7 about that. You can find that from Isaiah 53 or other places, but it's not in Isaiah 7. And yet Matthew says, <clears throat> calling his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, is all this that took place to fulfill this. Do you see? The promises actually got bigger in their fulfillment than they were ever stated at the beginning. G.K. Beale, a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, uh, gives a great illustration of this. He says, um, imagine it's toward the end of the 1800s and a father says to his eight-year-old son, when you're a man, I'm going to give you a horse and buggy. Fast forward 10 years later, the Ford Model A is around. Has that father neglected his promise if he gives his son a Model A instead of a horse and buggy? Has he messed up the promise? Oh, no, no, no. He's fulfilled the promise and then some. I think we'd all rather have a Model A than a horse and buggy, unless you're a cowboy. Uh, so the father has fulfilled the promise in an enlarged way. And in this scenario, with God as our Father, He actually knows about Model A's that are going to come in the future. It's all part of His plan. But He doesn't speak of Model A's because in the late 1800s, you may not get what is meant by a Ford Model A. And so He speaks in terms of horses and buggies, but fulfills those promises with Ford Model A's. Does that make sense? I think that's a great illustration. It's not mine, so I can say so. Here's, here's my illustration that I just came up with, and, uh, and I think it is pretty good, actually. Uh, so it's like skipping a rock. It's like skipping a rock at the lake. Doop, doop, doop. This is the promise. These are fulfillments. Now, when you skip a rock at the lake... The first hit's the biggest, isn't it? Right? The first span is the longest. And then they keep getting shorter and shorter. Don't they? So with Bible promises, it's different. The promise comes, and there's this little fulfillment. Ding. And then it's growing. <laughs> And then, can you just picture this? I, I want Hollywood to do this. I want there to be this magical rock that someone, like a Lord of the Rings movie, they take this magical rock and they skip it and it goes, tidal wave. That's how promises work from the prophets to the end of time. Now, you can look there on your notes, 1.5, as I wrap this up, actually, believe it or not. This is really review. 
I've just summarized it for us. Here are some shared themes among the prophets. Here's what you want to look for when you turn to a prophet. You want to find any hint of the exile if it's there. You want to find covenant or covenants that that might be there or alluded to. You, You want to find stuff about God's character because that's one of the ways that prophets argue their case. They'll point to Israel's sin, but they'll also say, God has been so faithful. They'll review history. They'll keep on this thing of the unrelenting problem of sin. Then they'll talk about one that's to come. You can call him Messiah or the servant or the Davidic king or even God himself one day will come. You can find the prophets talking about an age to come. Sometimes that's just something new, or it's that day, or it's the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord might have layers of fulfillment. It may be that final day. It might be the day of Jesus. You've got the temple, sometimes referred to as a physical temple that's going to be destroyed, or a physical temple that'll be rebuilt, or sometimes a cosmic, symbolic, otherworldly kind of temple that represents... Well, the kind of temple we'll have at the end of time, a new heaven, new earth, right? You can think of the nations and how they'll be judged or be saved. This thing's going global in these two different ways. Look for that in the prophets. Write down Zephaniah at this point in your notes. Zephaniah is uh, three chapters And you could easily look at Zephaniah and simply by the headings that you have in your Bible, if your Bible has headings, you could simply go, okay, Zephaniah, what's it about? Well, judgment's coming on Judah. The day of the Lord is near. These are headings in my Bible in Zephaniah. Judgment is coming on Judah's enemies. That's soon. In fact, judgment is coming on Judah and all the nations. That's at the end. Zephaniah talks about the conversion of the nations and ends by talking about Israel's restoration and joy. So do you see how the timeline of Zephaniah is sort of doing this, and then this, and then that, and then that. We're not really bothered by the timeline if we understand these topics have been addressed in various order, and it wasn't quite clear what the order would be in the prophetic day, but it's clear to us now. We, we don't need Zephaniah to spell it out for us in chronological order. We know the chronology. We just see the topics. We go, oh, okay, so that's what it's doing. It, it almost allows you to sort of loosen your grip. I grew up playing hockey. Uh, they say in the pros when someone's in a scoring slump, eh, he's gripping the stick too tight. Right? He, he knows he needs to score. They pay him to score, and he's not scoring. And so he gets an open net, and ah, he's gripping the stick too tight. And so he'll probably score a goal if he just lets loose a little bit. It's kind of like that with studying the prophets. You might just want to loosen up the grip just a bit and be okay with a, what feels like a little bit of sloppiness. But obviously it's not. It's God's revelation. It's his word. There's some things that all the prophets have in common, but there are also some unique things with each prophet, and really that's their own blend of the same kind of things. If that makes sense? So if you think of it like um, 
you know, Beethoven's fifth has the same notes throughout each of the movements. You can tell it, there's some similarity between first movement and second movement. But they all have their own little unique bits as well. Uh, you can say this musician writes these kinds of songs. They're usually in a minor key or whatever. But then each song has its own melodic line. So the prophets have some things in common. Look for those. And then go looking for what's unique about one single prophet, if that's what you're studying. So in Hosea, you might notice this, the, the spiritual infidelity, the harlotry. In Joel, you'll see an emphasis on the day of the Lord. In Jeremiah, there's this emphasis of persistent rejection of God's messenger. Uh, in Malachi, it's empty religion, but a promise of a messenger to come. Each one has their own little contribution to make. And so this stuff is not far off from us. It might feel like it's disconnected from God's people, like we're detached, like we're a long ways away from prophets in a different redemptive era than the one we're in. But, but, but it's not that different. Look down, 1.7 in your notes. Here are some lines that we can draw from prophets of old to even ourselves today. Do we need to repent of sin? That's what they wrote about. Sometimes we need to hear their rebuke. Do we need to flee to God's mercy? Oh, they call us to do it. There, there's a wide open welcome mat, an invitation in these prophets. Do we need to reflect on God's character? Do we need to review his past provenness? The prophets are a great place for that. Do we need to afresh Look to Christ and the new covenant now from our perspective with thankfulness and assurance. Do we need to remember to wait on him and, and on his timing? Because we wish Jesus would come back, at least we should. It seems like it's a long ways away. Well, wait. That's what the prophets were doing. That's what they were telling God's people to do. They were also showing how to wrestle with mystery with bold, humble faith that moves from lament to praise. And maybe one of the most important things about the prophets is we learn not to despise God's discipline. Even though we're in a new covenant era, uh, we still have this thing called discipline that Hebrews 12 talks about. And if you're tempted to despise the Lord's discipline uh, or even trials, well, the prophets might be just what you need. Well, let me just pray briefly, and we're not going to take a break here. We're going to turn things over to Ron. Uh, if you have a, a bathroom emergency, then by all means, go and use the bathroom. But uh, we'll push through for a second session uh, right now, and then we'll take a, a break for, for bathroom and, and coffee uh, after Ron's session. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to long for communion with you. We thank you that you revealed yourself so wonderfully, sometimes complexly and mysteriously, but wonderfully, Lord. We thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.